Hi, my name is Lauren Vandergrift, and I have been working in the health policy space for about a dozen years now for many organizations, usually always on the technology side of the health policy landscape. And with me today is my co-host. Hi, my name is Joe Grundy. I've had the distinct pleasure of working in nearly every aspect of primary care transformation over the past 13 years now. Wow, time really flies. From in the practice, in the trenches practice transformation work with the health system to doing high-level consulting with Medicare and CMS's Innovation Center to doing advocacy work in D.C. Yeah, he's a big deal. He's done it all, as you will hear, and he knows it, so he'll talk about that, too. Uh, but yeah, we, we're, we're here today. Uh, he and I are long, 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 long-time friends, and we've been talking about doing a podcast now for many years, and finally we get it together, and it turns out it might actually be a pretty great time, given what's happening in the world right now in terms of COVID and how that's going to shape the, the medical landscape here. Um, yeah, our goal is to be more than just a factual letting you know about the policy stuff day to day. It's really to humanize healthcare policy and give a, a real connection point for everybody to understand sort of what's going on, what can happen and how we can all affect change in this in this time in healthcare. Yeah, so I think to, to expand upon that, what we're trying to do is build a podcast that doesn't necessarily talk about the the newest and hottest innovation or the best practices coming out of an esoteric research study, but really taking the information that is pivotal for all of us to know and understand basic concept and really making it tangible and meaningful for everyone that participates in healthcare delivery, not just policy wonks, but frontline MAs to you know physicians that are being overwhelmed right now in the time mm -hmm. of COVID. Exactly. So what, what follows now is the first recording that we did over a month ago in the uh, top upstairs of Joe's favorite Korean restaurant in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C., where there's game noises in the background and it's just us off the cuff talking. And we never intended for this to, to be our first episode, but it turns out, and in hindsight, listening to it, that it was really the perfect introduction to who we are, what our goals are. And we think, honestly, just... If we're trying to humanize things, this is about as human as it gets. So we think this is a way to start it off. So we hope you enjoy it. Uh, without further ado, here is the first episode of The CareCast. Should we each... Uh, should I start? Who wants to start it? You can start it. Go ahead. Okay. You have the better voice for this. <clears throat> Hello and welcome to the first inaugural episode of the CareCast, a healthcare transformation slash how the f*** do we fix this thing podcast. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Lauren. Hey, I'm your other host, Joe. And pretty much we have set ourselves up in the upstairs game attic area of a beautiful and delicious Korean restaurant in Adams Morgan, where we are hoping to uh, see how this all goes. Yeah, absolutely. Get the flow, get the rhythm of, of speaking to one another. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be interesting. Um, you know, we have these conversations constantly where we... You know, we usually after a few beers, and we feel like we kind of fix healthcare every time we ever talk uh, at a certain hour of the evening at the bar. And we thought, why not try and bring this together and combine 
the vast knowledge and experience that Joe has and my fringe knowledge and experience that I have and come together to sort of talk a little less doctorly, a little less policy-ish, policy wonkish, and try and really talk about healthcare in, in a real way, where it's at, the history of this reform, and yeah, just kind of kind of keep doing this. I don't know. Uh, and just as a reminder to myself, like our, our intent is to create content that is easily decipherable by the average person, right? So, Which is I've, really hard for him because he's really wordy. I know, seriously. So <laughs> that, that's why I need to remind myself. So I've worked in, in primary care practices before, and quite frankly, the language of health policy just goes over the head of even most physicians. So like designing and developing content to help normal people understand what's happening is kind of important, particularly given all the things we see happening today. It's normal people, but also to be applicable, not just to, it's not the random guy working at the 7-Eleven who doesn't care about healthcare at all. It's people who are in and around healthcare and wanting to know details, just not quite all the, the lingo. I'm actually, I'm sort of a perfect example because uh, we'll get into our history in a second, but for me, I've been around this world now for 12, no, God, yeah, 12 years, yeah. Um, which is insane. And while I, I do know at this point all the different components to it for the most part, I have no idea how they link together or why they are the way they are or the history or any of that stuff. And I feel like a lot of people, even a lot of those people working here in D.C. on health policy probably don't know. Oh, absolutely. And... and- that is the um uh gauntlet machine behind us which uh, apparently goes off at random intervals we may have to unplug that one later but um it's uh some authenticity i suppose absolutely um your son really liked it right your six-year-old my six-year-old son loves gauntlet from 1991 he's just a big 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 fan actually 1989 i think 85 85 um that is that that game is literally as old as i am i was just thinking that when he's when he's our age that's good. Wow. Well, hopefully by the time he's our age, healthcare will not be as fucked as it is today. Or we'll all be dead, so... That's true. Other, I mean, yeah. there's, there's, there's COVID-19, there is global warming, and, you know, there, there are times and places where I regret bringing a child into this world, given how his life may be. Yeah, actually, so to timestamp this thing, <laughs> that is, uh, exactly. So this, I mean, this probably won't see the light, the light of day. If it does, then uh, I'll probably have edited this out, but if not, that'll be very interesting. But the... Uh, the state of the world right now is really interesting in that today is the Super Tuesday primary for the Democrats in 2020, March 3rd today. And it is a crazy moment because we have the socialist candidate Bernie Sanders in the lead. Joe Biden has just made this comeback as a moderate. Coronavirus is spreading like crazy. Trump is literally calling it the common cold, yep. putting people in. I mean, it, it's such a crazy place right now when it comes to our politics but also very much how it affects our health and well-being and healthcare. I mean it's it's a crazy time to be starting this in this Korean restaurant. And, and quite frankly like it is a a perfect time right so election years in the United States all anyone talks about is who pays for healthcare. And Lauren you and I have actually had a, an interesting opportunity to be at the ground level as a as a more meaningful form of healthcare reform took place with the patient center medical home movement. And quite frankly, the, the, the beauty of that and the success of that might in large part be due to the fact that it wasn't just about who pays for healthcare, right? Medicare for all, employer-based um, insurance coverage, cash pay, that is all a question of who's buying healthcare, not necessarily what the care that, that an individual human being is receiving is. So 
in an election year, we lose sight of the fact that health insurance is not the same thing as health care. And we tend to conflate that. And the medical home was an initial attempt, God, like you said, 12 years ago, to try to bridge the gap between the care that people actually receive and how it's paid for. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's interesting because that is that is how it was. But I even now think listening to you say that that was the point about the quality of care. But in my head, I was like, well, it's how you can have a reduced healthcare costs by having the primary care doctor be your main point of contact, so that the uh, so that it works as a whole team, and so that we can reduce the cost of healthcare, so that people will be able to pay for it as it scales up, which is. Uh, Right, not at all the main the main goal of it to start, and that's totally how I think of it, which is brutal. Well, but I think that that's that's the trap that we are all caught in, quite frankly. Like in America, what we tend to talk about is how expensive healthcare, which is fair because it's so we live in the literal wealthiest society in the history of humankind, like in a, in a to a span that is truly unimaginable to others even a century ago and one twentieth of our economy is dedicated to buying shitty healthcare which is nuts right like our health so in 2000 I think this 2013 data we paid more for the administration of Medicare so just the percentage of money that went to hospital administration than the entirety of the provision of care for England's National Health Service not the total UK is just England but England is the most populous nation right so we we paid more just to administer Medicare for people, Americans 65 and older and those with chronic diseases than the actual delivery of care costs the nation of England. And they, it's true that they're one-tenth the population, but still, just, yeah. and, and don't get me wrong, Medicare is actually the most efficient at the administration cost. As I say, yeah, Medicare, yeah, that's from what I understand. Yeah, there. It, <laughs> and by, a, by, an, by a, a power of, of exponents, right? So back in the day, it was 10% of the administrative cost of a lot of commercial plans. But Joe, didn't the ACA make it so that there was capitated? Uh, yes, um, it did. Yeah, what about that check I got for $4.82 <laughs> last year for uh, their overexpenditure in administration? It, it, it is amazing what commercial health insurance companies have been able to categorize as care as the provision of care services or the purchase of care delivery. So oftentimes marketing gets lumped into care delivery for the purposes of accounting and budgeting. Interesting. Um, that is something we'll have to deal with in a whole different podcast on its own, I think. Yeah. So to, to roll back the conversation a little bit, um, right. earlier we said that we were going to do uh, our backgrounds. And I think what you can probably tell already is that we are, in many ways, two asshats that happen to fall into yes. meaningful healthcare reform um, in That's 2007, um, both of us. So I... I was fortunate enough to take an internship here in DC with an employer trade association that happened to house what would become the patient center medical home. Um, and if you haven't heard of PCMH, I, I suspect that you were in for a roller coaster of a ride because it really was a paradigm shift in American healthcare. And it's acronym soup, but I mean, Lauren, what's your take on it? I mean, you literally came in as a total outsider. I came in as mostly as an outsider, but yeah. So to, so to set the stage, uh, I came in, uh, I was living in Brooklyn, New York at the time. This is yeah, circa the end of 2007, roughly. Um, and I had this college friend, uh, Joe Grundy, who's to my right, uh, staying with me because he was 
being a he was leaping on my couch literally as he canvassed around strange parts of Harlem and Queens with various people bringing back strange men to come sleep on our other couch uh, that he had met who didn't have a place to go home to. Uh, well, actually, that guy turns out he's now really big in BlackRock or something. Yeah, Some he's, crazy. He's like yeah, huge it's fucking so weird. VP yeah, that's, that's another story for another day. But uh, then he moves off to DC to go work on this project for this thing called the Arissa Industry Committee, which still, you know. To this day, I don't really exactly know. All, I mean, I get sort of how it all worked together, but uh, yeah, from this it, from this organization, spun up this medical home focused organization called the uh, Patient Centered Primary Care Collaborative, uh, which you were the first employee of, correct? I was indeed the, yeah. the first full employee of, and and actually, as they spun out of the Risk Industry Committee. I was, again, crashing on your couch in Queens this time, um, writing the business plan for the PCPCC, mm-hmm. what would eventually become the nonprofit um, patient Brooklyn, center. I never lived in Queens, but whatever. Oh, that's, that's true. It's really Brooklyn. important. Brooklyn Heights. <laughs> no, Carol Carol Gardens. Gardens. Jesus Christ. You're yeah. in D.C. too long, man. No, seriously. With um, Kansas in the middle, also. Bizarrely. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, our, our experience really is kind of unique. We, Lauren and I would stay up working on getting the whole patient-centered medical home movement going until sometimes 3 or 4 a.m. on random weekdays because we worked with this kick-ass boss who basically rolled in at 5 p.m. and said, okay, time to do work now. And for those of you who've been working all day, guess what? We're here for the long haul. (laughs) I drove my, I would drive my geoprism up. I'd leave at, uh, yeah, I'd leave at 11 p.m. the night before and get there and sleep all day and then roll in yet. But at three or four o'clock and we'd get into mode to build up this business outside the office hours for the U.S. industry committee because it was, uh, yeah, that wasn't part of the the normal daily grind there. So I was, yeah, I was like this infidel sneaking my multicolored geoprism in at the time that had a hard, hard, hard life on the streets of Brooklyn. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, so that, that was yeah, 2007, 2008. Oh, take a look another five minutes or something. Um, but yeah, no, so um, that was how we all got involved. I came in strictly on a website creation basis at the time. Um, I had been making uh, websites for bars and restaurants and some small businesses in New York. You know, those old flash sites that never worked on phones, and it was back in those days. Back in the days, no one had phones. I could load an internet browser, so it didn't matter. That's true. Also, you know, I literally had Chrome yesterday. I had to load up a flash thing on a Citibank website for a virtual credit card, and it, and it was like, it's like you have to use flash, and Chrome was like, we are we killing don't, flash. We, we don't do this we anymore. Will, yeah, we don't do this. We'll do this for this one time, but it's being sunset. Like, you cannot do this anymore. The strip told me no. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> wow. Well, like, they, they did get sued the shit out of, you know, by Oracle, so. Oh, for flash? No, for, for, um, for Java, I thought. It was well, an well, underlying for... component of flash. Like, oh, yeah. they, well, it was one bit. of those big oh, Who knows, man. Yeah. It's all, the point is, it's a different era, and <clears> always, and all that we're doing, um, yeah, so, uh, I mean, what was, I guess, just to, just to put it, uh, ask you a question and to kind of transition here would be sure. to ask you, um, and ultimately today, we're just honestly trying to set the levels of the audio. Joe's doing a terrible thing he couldn't do. It's banging up all over. We can never have that in the audio recording. But um, what, uh, <laughs> what I wanted to do a little bit is to kind of give the history of, of things, but really talk about... Like, what is this concept of the of the medical home? Um, yeah. What was it? What 
was the goal of it, which you alluded to earlier, and and then ultimately how it sort of shifted and transformed in a really hugely broad stroke overview, because there's a million components to this that we could cover for years and years and years, mm -hmm. um, talking to a lot of people. Uh, and so it's really just to kind of get a, a basis to understand what what was this this thing that in a lot of ways had huge influences on Obama's ACA, mm -hmm. almost every single plan that exists now from every presidential candidate. And actually, frankly, even the even the stuff on, on the right, like even their, not to be partisan, but silly concepts of how to fix there, a lot of them do actually think about that primary care and medical home concepts are the things that will help. I mean, it's pretty much it's pretty much a bipartisan it's concept. I mean, yeah, it's, it's there. And it's based, I mean, and the reason it is, it, if we're going to be partisan anyway in this never-to-be-released recording, it's the fact that even the right wing of the Republican Party can't deny that level of evidence. Like, we know that what? primary oh, care I... makes a huge fucking difference, right? So when you look at healthcare outcomes and when you look at healthcare um, quality, the one thing that really makes an impact, actually, so two things that really make an impact, three, in terms of improving lifespan and overall quality of care and life um, duration for for citizens. So the two that I added on, the first is sanitation, right? So having sewers is really important. The second is refrigeration for food. Um, the third is primary care, right? So what's strange is like the most good line. Yeah, the, what, <laughs> the most elementary component of care delivery, what we take most for granted, right? So your primary care doctor is the frontline doctor that you talk to. So if you have a cold, if you break your leg, if you um, just need to take your kid to see their pediatrician, that's primary care. They're the ones that will actually help you diagnose what's going on in your life. They'll help you manage your chronic disease. If you have a chronic disease, um, and then they'll hopefully refer you out to specialists when it goes beyond the scope of their specific knowledge base. So they are generalists. They, that means that they know a ton about everything, but there are those who know a, more about very narrow subjects. So those would be your specialists. But Joe, what if I have a bad back right now? I know I got to go see a, a PT. Why do I even have to go to my primary care doctor? So your primary care doctor serves two important roles. One is that initial diagnosis because quite frankly, we as human beings suck at decision making. That's right? why we have WebMD, Joe. I know. Seriously, or <laughs> Dr. Google. Um, the second, though, is even if you do go see your PT, if you work with your primary care physician, they can help coordinate that care in terms of your overall health, right? So right now, it's on you to figure out, you know, implement the recommendations that you get back from your physical therapist to um, manage the drugs that you're getting from your, I guess, from the primary care physician, hopefully. But if not, then your... Um, you know, the role of primary care in many ways is to serve as your linchpin to, to take the burden of coordinating care and integrating a health plan off your shoulders as a patient, and they have the, the expertise to do that in-house. Yeah, that checks out. Yeah, so, um, so you asked kind of where the patient and medical home came from, and the, the reality is that for those of you, and I'm sure most of you recognize this, Healthcare in America, the history of healthcare in America is a series of very unfortunate accidents and sequences, um, which culminated in the 80s and 90s with the decline of, of primary care and this, this trend to increasing um, inpatient specialization. So we saw people going into the hospital to receive care more and more often. And the, the problem with that is if you go to a hospital, even for routine care, it is incredibly expensive. And we have this 
we had this issue where no one and very few people in America actually pay for their own healthcare services, right? So either their employer pays or the state or federal government pay on their behalf. So we get insurance from someone else. And this, this creates a paradox where the, the incentive for hospitals, quite frankly, is to drive up costs because they're charging, they're charging someone who doesn't ever show up um, to ask why it costs so much. They're charging a third party insurer. And so the patient, you know, in the 80s and 90s, we saw a huge spicing in, in cost and, you know, this overwhelming move into what was HMOs, um, health, health management organizations, to try to rein in expenses. And that was purely a cost containment device. It wasn't intended to improve quality of care or anything like that for, for patients. And the consequence of that, though, and when we set up these gatekeeper systems is that people stopped wanting to go to the primary care physician. There was a negative association there with. And then the there is this fear um, as we moved out of HMOs that primary care would eventually just kind of wither and die on the vine because it is the, the lowest paid specialty. Um, the three primary care specialties, which are family medicine, well, four, depending on how you want to find it, but um, family medicine, pediatrics, <clears throat> and general practice internal medicine are the lowest paid of the specialties um, in healthcare. And so fewer and fewer people were going to primary care. It was seen as um, non-glamorous, it didn't have social prestige, and there was this, this notion and this understanding that if we didn't somehow bolster primary care in our nation, that our whole healthcare system would collapse. And strangely enough, what it took was the, there was, there was actually a very fortuitous series of events where um, you had one researcher, literally one researcher and her team at Johns Hopkins, Barbara Starfield, who did large population-based research and, and generated data about what impacts mortality. Wait, when was this? When was So this is in the 90s. So she did her research through the 90s into the early 2000s. And she's a name if you know anything about uh, primary care and this work. She's you know, she's the award. She's the one that has the award named after her kind yeah. of a person. I mean, she's uh, the the kind of the godmother of the whole movement or you know. Yeah, she, she's so Barbara Starfield is the one that generated the evidence for how we can how we can move the needle in terms of cost and in terms of quality. And her finding was primary care. Um, and at the same time that research was coming out, a number of large international employers based in the US, led by IBM, um, but by no means limited to IBM, were looking all around the world and saying, why the heck does it cost us so much more to get decent healthcare for our employees in the US? Break, dance break time. Maybe, maybe that should be our intro music. Yeah, right. Oh, we found our intro music. There we go. <laughs> um, and so these, these international employers literally had the data in terms of they could have the exact same employee in two different locations, the same position, right? So one in Denmark and one in the U.S., and how much it costs effectively to sustain those, that individual with benefits and health insurance. And they realized that their experience, actually it was Belgium. So they, they realized that it, healthcare in America was just exceedingly expensive, and, and like 50 to 60% of healthcare benefits in the U.S. are covered by private employers. Mm -hmm. um, we take it for granted that we get health insurance benefits through our employers when we're working age. Um, and so they, they came to the table. So they, they all got together and they started saying, why the, why the fuck are we paying for so much, 
so much for healthcare in America when the outcomes are really shitty. Like our American employees are sicker, they take more days off, there's, you know, there's drug utilization is way off the charts compared to the international populations. They may smoke less, which is a positive, but everything else like, <laughs> like sucks. Um, and so they started looking at the data and, and IBM started looking at data and they found Barbara Starfield's research. And so these same employers got together through the ERISA Industry Committee, which is which represents Fortune 100 companies on something called ERISA preemption issues here in DC for lobbying, but um, basically said, why, why can't we buy better healthcare? I mean, we pay so much, but why can't we buy something better? And so the IBM then started a conversation. <laughs> it's like trying to apply your business logic to the thing you're paying uh, yeah, you know, exactly, the most yeah. for, your biggest line item. Exactly. Right? I mean, like, it's, it's a huge drain on the resources of, of major American companies. Um, and so they, they then approached the four primary care physician societies. And for, for those of you in the audience, this is the physician societies. That's a whole nother conversation in the role that they play in healthcare. But we'll we're a big topic. Exactly. For sure. So <laughs> we're talking about the American College of Physicians, which represents the internal med docs. We'd here, from here on out is ACP. ACP. Um, the American Academy of Family Physicians. AAFP. The American Academy of Pediatrics. AAP. And the American Osteopathic Association. AOA. And one of the AOAs. Yeah. One of, and, <laughs> and basically, the employer said, look, if you are willing to come together and give us one product, one model of primary care that meets our needs, we will pay you differently than we're doing today. And they literally forced, forced representatives of these four organizations into a room and said, get shit together, come up with a common model. And it took, some, it took a while, obviously they didn't do it all at once in that, that locked room session, but they came together building off of some of the work that each of those organizations had done in the past to develop what was called the, the patient-centered uh, medical home. And the, the tenants were, there were seven core principles at the time in 2007. Those were um, every, every American should have a personal physician. Um, that means that you, Lauren, should be able to tell me who your doctor is by name. Like, because we know that if you can identify your physician, that your healthcare outcomes will be higher and your costs will be lower. And people throw around a lot of numbers like, if you can identify your personal primary care physician, then your total cost will be 19% lower. But like, My no. doctor's name is, not kidding, Dr. Hack. Nice. Yeah. Um, That's really the care, care should be physician-directed, right? So physician-led in a team-based concept. So working, everyone working to top of licensure with a physician, you know, if they need working with um, ancillary support staff like PAs or nurse practitioners, with MAs and, R and RNs kind of devolving down the way. You're getting real wordy there. But I know, sorry about that. Okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about team-based care another time. But Yeah, yeah. Um, it, should, it should have a whole person orientation, which means you as a patient, this is a, diff a more complex way of saying it should be patient-centered. So your care um, should be delivered in a fashion that takes you, Lauren Vandegrift, as an entity into account, right? So it's not just about your head, it's not just about your heart, it's not just about a single disease. But primary care should focus on everything you need, the, the mental needs, the physical needs, acute, chronic, you name it. Um, Almost like you're having whole person care. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Got it. Um, it should be coordinated. So care should, as you navigate through the healthcare system, right, as you talk to specialists, as you talk to your psychiatrist, your psychologist, that data should flow back to a single source. So you never are responsible for managing that. You, sh you should never need to tell your doctor what your other doctor said that should that information should reside what? in one place some sort of medical record housing system yeah, exactly wow. and then it should be it should be based um it ha it should have 
a framework for enhanced access. So you should, if when you need your doctor, you should be able to get hold of your doctor to the appropriate level. And then finally, it, it should be based on quote unquote quality and evidence based. And I have some huge issues with that. But this, <laughs> this all kind of continued to evolve over the next five years or so until um, a federal agency, the, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, AHRQ, kind of came up with a more succinct framework, which is five core components. One, care should be patient-centered. Again, you, Lauren Vandegrift, should have a partnership with your doctor and mm-hmm. um, your your specific So to, just to clarify, this is when the government got involved and they started they started kind of formalizing these concepts that the employers had gotten together to kind of force on the... Well, actually, strangely enough, no. So the, yeah. the government didn't get involved in the way that you would think. It was never a, a top-down thing. Well, kind of down the road it was, but mm-hmm. the government... So the HRQ is a research or organization. and Funded they, by the government. Yeah, funded by the government. Yeah. And they came together basically say, you know, based on some of these really cool pilots and things around the medical home that are taking place, here are what, here are what the, the things that we think make the most difference. So the first is patient-centered. The second is that it's comprehensive. Again, that whole person orientation. Care should be coordinated. Again, you as a patient shouldn't be in charge of telling your one doctor what your other doctor said. Um, it should be accessible. Again, the right care at the right time provided by the right person. And then it ha- should have a basis in quality and safety. So quality improvement, you know, high performance metrics, etc. Um, and the, the reality is that those were then codified. The patient center medical home was codified in a series of recognition programs by a third-party accreditation body. So the National Committee for Quality Assurance, NCQA, is probably the one that our listeners know the most, right? So they have the PCMH recognition program, and that that is almost universal in its scope at this point. So we, we saw the development of recognition programs for medical home leading to the germination of, of more aggressive programs. And kind of one of the things I wanted to ask you was, how do you think the model evolved? So we both had a chance to see the implementation from, from concept with the signing of the joint principles into the strong arming of insurance companies to, to implement pilots. Um, and now what happened? Like, where, where do you, th- what do you think happened in the medical home since then? Well, it's a um, big, putting me now, it's switching it to me. What? Yeah. I'm just here to be the comic relief, man. What are you talking about? Uh, so, oh, to, for our listeners' sake, one of the things I want to point out is Lauren Vandegrift has been the core individual that has participated in the entirety of the patient center medical home journey, right? So, the, PCM, the PCPCC, the Patient Center Primary Care Collaborative, has existed to, to house and promote the notion of the medical home since 2007. We hired Lauren as a, as a web designer in 2008, 2007, 2008, somewhere around there. Right, you're in the, right in the border area, right? um, end of 2007. And he quite literally is the only person that has stayed with the Patient Center Primary Care Collaborative the entire time. So he's seen all the the permutations of the model and the movement. <laughs> it, yeah, it's been it's been interesting actually to have this this thirteen years of uh, of experience. Because, you know, I've never, you know, uh, Joe's been in it fully the entire time, various organizations, but always in it, living, breathing, breathing it all the time. 
I sort of have a strange, but I think great position of being just a little bit hands off with it. So I'm always involved in it. I'm at conferences every year. I'm seeing things. I'm, I was running the webinars forever and ever as, you know, talking to everybody. I know all the major players and all this. So it's like, I kind of have the, uh, this perspective, but it's not been dominating my life. You know, I've grown my own different businesses and organizations and different sectors and other parts of healthcare. And, you know, I've kind of, uh, been able to have this as a constant, but a small constant. So it's sort of like being an observer, which has been fascinating and, uh, you know, ups and downs like crazy. I mean, <laughs> we still, I remember at the, the PCBCC conference in 2016, uh, it was the day after the election it was when it started. So the, the first night we had the meet and greet, it was election day <laughs> and, uh, everybody had, Everybody was assuming that, that Hillary would win. And uh, our, our keynote speaker, who's the woman who, uh, who basically wrote the ACA, I forget her name right now, I can look it up later, fact check it. She had sent in her slides and it was this Star Wars-themed thing about how the light side had won and now that we have our power, what can we do with this? And it was this beautiful, I mean, super corny. She's adorably corny, this woman. Um, take on, now we, now we have the power, what can we do with it, right? And then we have to treat it with the good and the good, you know, not the dark side. And uh, at three in the morning, I had been wandering the streets of DC, just just in a, just totally apoplectic. I didn't. I was just so out of it. And I uh, get this email from her, and she basically said, "I'm sure there are errors in here. I've been. I can barely see through my tears the key, the keys." But she converted it to a "How do we survive as the resistance with the dark side taking over?" thing. And it was just like it was the most emotional conference ever because it was. We had so many incredible. Uh, were luminaries in the space there this particular year in 2016 and it was just it was crazy to be in DC for the election with all these people that had worked so hard and been seeing trying to move the, the ACA the Affordable Care Act and what it how it formalized so much of this primary care and, and medical home model and then seeing how does this then work in this new era that now we're four, almost four years into um, get ready for another four years I mean sh- uh, uh, but but no yeah I mean it, it has it's been it's been a really interesting ride and so I'm, I'm excited to be here and to talk through this to really um, you know one thing to, to talk about just to cover this in, in our in our uh, our little mini mini sort of random things here is to talk about kind of why we are talking about doing this because um, it's through I mean for me doing these various webinars and being on this periphery and I've always it's always been a bunch of really smart, some hilarious, really interesting people talking about their 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 part in this, but it's never felt like there was a it feels very formulaic that the you know, you go and you go to attend panels where people talk about a given thing and then the people ask the same questions and then the same old bearded dudes come up and make their little point that they have to go and, and talk about uh, as a QA and we have to like get them off the stage and whatever. It's always this like pattern to how um, advocating and pushing this thing is, is works in all the conferences I've been to. And, uh, and then started thinking, well, maybe there's a podcast. So I was looking through podcasts about this and there, there's just, there's no, uh, vector for really having a real talk about not only what, what is happening in this movement, but also having real discussions, getting people involved. We have so many smart people. There's billions of dollars. Money is flooding into this space right now, whether it's from Silicon Valley or 
the you know Walmart now is clinic. I mean, this is super. You know, you can go to Walmart now and just not use insurance, or just skipping insurance completely to get to be care. I mean, so many things happening, and I feel like making a uh, a podcast or a, a platform or a social community. I mean, we're not we're, we're starting as a podcast, but the idea is it can be anything to be able to run events to, to just become a place, a real talk place where we can discuss this with some of the smartest people because we happen to have this privilege 13 years of knowing the people. It's like, it's like, it's like we were in this, the gold golden age It's like being in early Hollywood and have access to all of them. And all of them are alive. All of them are ready to talk. Some are are retiring now, but we have such an amazing level of access in, in a way that I think is unprecedented. And it really excites me that we can start to not only have these conversations, but really move towards actual conclusions and actions and, and, and kind of rally, kind of rally around conclusions we can make with this stuff, not just talk about it and bitch about it for the thousandth time. And I think that's just for me kind of why I think that this is important. And uh, this is our first sort of stab at it. And this is um, surely unrecorded, but uh, I mean, I'm not recording. It's but uh, <laughs> soon uh, to be deleted. Yeah, like never to be uh, to be see the light of day because we'll get our acts together and not have games in the background. But yeah, that is that is the vision as I see it. Uh, do you feel similarly? Yeah, or? so I, I totally agree. Right. So um, you know, you have worked consistently for the the patients and primary care collaborative. And you've seen this this facet of the well, and others too. and and others mm-hmm. and, and the movement to healthcare reform. Um, I've taken a, a different path where I've I've worked nearly every aspect of healthcare delivery reform, right? So I, I went from the the PCPCC to work for the consulting arm of the American Academy of Family Physicians, where it was the first medical home transformation consulting company. And then I actually ended up getting beamed to the mothership and doing policy work around how do we change primary care um, for the AAFP. And not just medical home, but like as we move beyond the, the medical home, what should we be considering, right? So w- things we'll talk about in the future as well. So ACOs, accountable care organizations, direct primary care and cash-based practice um, and, and global payment methodologies. And then I actually went to work- Turns out it's all about the money. Yeah, a lot of it's about the money. And then, <laughs> I, then I went to work for a health system where I was in the trenches working for primary care, phys- care physicians as they went through, you know, one of the things I did was, was lead a patient-centered medical home recognition process. Um, so I had to live through the thing that I had helped originally contribute to way back in the day. Um, this is why I'm going to be the optimist and he'll likely be the more cynical one in this dynamic, I have yeah. a feeling, given that he's literally been through the shit. Yeah, well, <laughs> and tried to figure out how I could... I love that spring. So, so, so in the future, this will be much more summarized, but basically I agree. Like the podcast is an opportunity to affect change at a broad scale because we need to shift the paradigm of conversation in, in this nation. Um, the medical home was a paradigm shift, but that is a decade and a half old now. And we haven't made any real headway since then. Yeah. We've gotten, we've gotten so deep in the weeds with this stuff now that I think that there is room to have 
get back to having that real honest conversation, getting people talking, getting you guys as listeners, because half of you probably know us, especially to start, you definitely will know us. <laughs> and I want to get you guys on here, have you guys be able to call in, have it be real. I don't want it to be a bunch of slide decks just pointing out things we all know. It's really about how do we look at this, look at the history, go over things, and then come up with, with ways to to move this needle. And I think that this medium, this direct direct to ears medium really frees us from that and i think that uh that's going to be i hope a game changer i mean i, th- I think the honesty and the, and and how real it will be will be refreshing for everybody um who's been you know just sitting at conferences or on webinars which are great i mean I, i'm still involved i did one yesterday i mean I, I i think they have massive value but i think there's there's a lot of room for but it's the same conversation just over and over and over again so uh, for example and um, forgive me for for reading something um I have, the, I have the opportunity to participate on someone else's podcast. Um, I'll get her name next time. Stacy Richter with the Relentless Health Value podcast. And I was one of, um, I think, seven interviewees she selected out of a bunch of us regarding what we thought the future of healthcare would bring in 2020. And, you know, I, I, came, I come to the table from the perspective of talking about advanced primary care models. So... DPC was one thing I talked about. And, and, What's and, DPC, Joe? Sorry, direct primary care. Um, oh, direct primary care. What's that, Joe? We'll talk about it next time. Okay. Um, and then talking about like the issues with, with value, how we assess value in healthcare. But after the conversation was done, I, I couldn't help myself. I literally paused and I said, hey, Stacy, can I ask you a question? So you spent this time interviewing me. And you're like, sure, that's a little bit unusual. Sure. Well, what do you, what's your question? <laughs> um, it was whether or not she thought the conversations in healthcare quality were getting stale. Like she's 500 episodes into her healthcare podcast and she, she interviews innovators and, and, and luminaries across the field. And, and yet at the, after that question, she paused and said, yeah, I think so. We keep saying the same thing over and over again. I keep hearing the same things over and over and over again. And then I, I read something for her, um, you know, I'll just read it for you. And let, tell me when you think this was written. So it's about it's about a vision of primary care delivery. So um, they dreamed that a new academic they is well, don't even bother getting into that. They dreamed in a new academic specialty would emerge whose core focus on issue, would be on issues surrounding patient management and the care of the whole person in their community. They believed that medical education was moribund and harmful and it needed a compassionate and thoughtful revitalization. The found, for the founders, the biomedical model was inadequate. They believed that it was not possible to be effective as physicians without understanding the contextual issues that influence a person's life. The biopsychosocial model, the power inherent in relationships and the ability and skills involved in creating facilitative relationships needed to be integrated into medical education, practice, and scholarship. While they were mindful and grateful for the powers and advances in medicine, they believed that social and economic conditions, which influenced the life of a person and community, had a greater impact on a person's life and health than did the power and might of all of medicine. They believed that medicine was a profession that involved more than technical skills and depth of knowledge. They believed that it was critical to have self-awareness and professional commitment to establish trusting and durable relationships with their patients. They accepted and embraced the responsibility of caring for the whole person, mind, body, and soul. What do you think that's about? Primary care. Sounds like medical home, doesn't it? Medical home, yeah. That was the statement of, that was the descriptions of the founding of the discipline of family medicine from the 60s. Wow. So when we talk about conversations being moribund 
and and circuitous and self-repeating. You know, earlier I said that the medical home was a paradigm shift, and it was, but only insofar as it tied that delivery model that was envisioned in the 60s to a payment form model as well. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, like, talk about proving your point. Yeah, you know, we are overdue for true innovation in healthcare. Yeah. And so that's, that's going to be, uh, that is not easy. So, we need a lot from the listeners as well, because this is not meant to just be a podcast where, you know, we're not Pod Save America here. We're not trying to just talk at you guys. Not that I love them, but like, let's talk to you guys and, and grow massive. And the whole point of this is to have real conversations with everybody via, web forums of anything we're trying to really get make this thing the beginning of of a real community of people that are really working together to solve things and build upon things and you know we'll have episodes where we go over the basics of stuff i still while having worked with quote-unquote acos for years now still want to understand because i want i still think there's room to go over this stuff but also to have advanced levels maybe we'll have different levels of podcasts or we'll get to have get togethers there's there's gotta be a way to uh go across mediums and media here in person and not in person and online and in all different ways because we have to do all that to i think get get all the voices heard and get there so there's going to be a lot of wine to hear from you guys and um wanting to really have some conclusions and then hopefully have you guys then take that stuff too because I'm sure a lot of you guys are working for the exact organizations that need to hear this. Yeah. Uh, so that's sort of the hope here is that this is the beginning of something much larger uh, and that this is, uh, yeah, a, a, um, a real, especially given where we are in time right now. I mean, like right now, coronavirus is grounding <laughs> grounding people. My friend just supposed to visit from Australia can't come right now because of coronavirus. Microsoft won't let them, you know, uh, my, f- my friends are stuck in, in Seattle. I mean, it's it's crazy. It's it's quite a time, uh, and I think that the the need for this. Well, frankly, it's a little late, probably for the start of this, but I think we're still in in good time to to make this make this happen. So I hope that uh, that through we're gonna do some of these, do a few of them, have some interviews, talk to people, and and just start to get a few of these under our, our belt, and then hopefully get to a really regular schedule where we're going through the news, disseminating stuff, talking about events that are happening that seem cool outside of this, like really get this to be, if this is your jam or you want it to be, or you care that this becomes a place that you kind of come to and check and want to be involved and really be a community um, that is not just, Hey, I'm doing this because my job mandates me. Listen, you know, like it's to be the passion is what we're looking for. And I think to to that end, um, what we're trying to do is is build something where it's not just highlighting the next sexy innovation in healthcare or the new device or you know the impact of AI in, in healthcare. All that is important, but that it doesn't help any of us to just highlight new stuff in healthcare. Like the the intent, at least for me, is to is to try to to force a paradigm shift again. You know, I, I tend to be wordy, but in the narrative, right? So how do we talk about healthcare? How do we, how do we come to terms with what you should expect, both there as a as a patient and a recipient of healthcare, and as someone who who participates in the delivery of healthcare? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, I got. <laughs> We're gonna have to hold this and see if we can like get. If you want to look up, in fact, I bet you it's online digitally. We can just find it. 
Uh, actually, the gauntlet is A, not a terrible name for a podcast, and B, not a terrible name for what we're trying to do with here and what this feels like. The healthcare gauntlet? <laughs> yeah. I like uh, it. <laughs> uh, this is Lauren Vandergriff signing off. And Joe Grundy, thank you all so much. This has actually ge- genuinely been fun. Yeah, it's been fun. Till next time. Cheers, guys. <laughs> <laughs>